0: All right, Ezekiel 28, that's where we are. That's where we are. Arg. It's noticing a number of my books have been borrowed for the decorations. Ezekiel 28. Now, you know why some Bible teachers enunciate their words so carefully, you see? Then they don't have to make fools of themselves. Verses 1 through 19, we're calling this Tyre uh, Rant. Rather. See, I can't even pronounce the word. Tyre Rant. All right, let's get into it. Imagine for a moment you're the Apostle Peter. You've been following the Lord for some time. You love Him with all of your heart. Jesus asks you and the rest of the boys, who do you say that I am? You step up to the challenge. You, ever, you know, sometimes people don't like to answer questions. I never answer questions like in a group. If people say, well, you know, what, you know, ask a question, just don't answer it because you never give the right answer. It's never the answer that the person's looking for. But anyway, so Jesus says, who do you say that I am? And Peter steps up to the challenge and he declares, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus commends you in front of everyone. He says, blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father Who is in heaven. And I also say to you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. Wow, the Lord, not only I gave the right answer, but the Lord did a play on words with my name, with Peter and Cephas and the rock and all that. That's pretty cool. It's got to be a most memorable moment, a high point in your ministry. While you're riding that high, this happens. This is in Matthew sixteen twenty one. the next couple of verses. From that time, Jesus began to show to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised on the third day. Then Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, that this should happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You're an offense to me. For you are not mindful of the things of God, but the things of men. Now that I don't know about you, but that's got to be an all time low. If the, the Lord, who just told you, you know, that the Father had been speaking to you and giving you insight, and then he says, he he turns to you and he says, Get behind me, Satan. Not only do you totally miss the point and get totally rebuked by Jesus, worse still, Jesus talks to you as if you were the devil. It's bad. Now, we don't for a moment think that Peter was the devil. We don't even think he was possessed by the devil. We understand this encounter to teach that Peter was being influenced by the devil. He was saying something that would be devil-like. Now, something just like that is going to happen in our text in Ezekiel, and that's why I started with that story. In verses 1 through 10, God announces His judgment upon the ruler of Tyre. In verses 11 through 19, God seems to be talking to Satan even though he's still addressing the ruler of Tyre. God was addressing a man, the ruler of Tyre, the whole time. But in the later verses, he was revealing the motivation behind that man, letting us know that it it was Satan. And uh, this may not mean a lot to you, but if you read the commentaries, there are so many different theories and understandings and Weird ideas about what's going on here. It's just like what Jesus did with Peter. Jesus is talking to Peter, but He addresses Satan because that was the motivation behind it. Peter's not possessed. Peter isn't the devil. He's Peter, but Jesus is pointing out what's going on behind the scenes. This simple comparison will help you if you ever do study this on your own and come across all these weird interpretations. And there's a lot of them. It's the ruler of Tyre behind whom was the devil. Remember, too, in the book of Daniel, we learn that there can be and there are satanic powers behind the rulers of the nations of the earth. We read there in Daniel about a demon who was called the prince of the kingdom of Persia. He withstood Gabriel in an angel wrestling match until Michael the archangel came to tag in. And then Gabriel was sent to give David the re- or Daniel the rest of the revelation. Uh, And so this is, uh, you know, every now and then the veil is removed and we see a little bit about what's going on in the spiritual world. uh, And and that's the kind of study that we have tonight. So in verse 1, the word of the Lord came to me again saying. Now this same phrase is going to repeat in verse 11 when God begins to address the one behind the ruler of Tyre. Verse 2, son of man, say to the prince of Tyre, thus says the Lord God, because your heart is lifted up, and you say, I'm a god, I sit in the seat of gods in the midst of the seas. Yet you are a man and not a god, though you set your heart as the heart of a god. Now the prince, or we'll call him the ruler of Tyre at this time in history, uh, according to my research, was a guy named the II. Did he really think he was a god, this Ithobal. Well, probably it was similar to what Nebuchadnezzar, the ruler of Babylon, thought. In chapter 4 of Daniel, we read about his assessment of himself as a world ruler. There in Daniel 4, verse 30, Nebuchadnezzar spoke, saying, Is not this great Babylon that I have built for a royal dwelling by my mighty power and for the honor of my majesty. And so Nebuchadnezzar is walking around Babylon. He's up on the walls of Babylon that were wide enough for chariots to go through and all. And he's looking at the magnificent city. And even though he had been warned in a dream that was interpreted by Daniel that he was going to be humbled, he nevertheless had this pride well up in his heart. And he ascribed all of that to himself. And it was at that moment before the words were even out of his mouth, that God smote him. You know the story. He was driven out into the fields where he lived as a wild animal for seven seasons. Uh, and again, the commentators try and say it's lycanthropy or something crazy. You know, they always trying to give a scientific explanation to what God does. I, I don't. Maybe it was. Who knows? He just he acted like an animal. His nails grew. His hair grew. It's crazy stuff seems that Daniel covered for him and, and uh, kept the kingdom going while Nebuchadnezzar was munching on the grass. Now, the II thought like that about the empire of Tyre. Here he was. We described the city to you. They're out. You know, there's the mainland city, but then there was the island city, impregnable, powerful. Uh, the envy of all the nations of the world. He was on top of the world, untouchable it seemed in a figurative sense. He was a God among men, but still with a little g and he was about to be humbled. Verse 3, Behold, you are wiser than Daniel. There's no secret that can be hidden from you. Now first of all, notice the fame of Daniel. He had been in Nebuchadnezzar's court for about 25 years at this point in history. His wisdom was legendary. As I already mentioned, he interpreted dreams, but sometimes he had to do it before they were even told. Nebuchadnezzar was, you remember, he was upset with his magic men, his magi and his soothsayers and all these guys. And so he had this dream one time, and he said, I want you guys to interpret my dream. And they said, Oh king, tell us the dream and we'll interpret it. And he said, you know, if you guys are so smart, you tell me my dream and then give me the interpretation. And they got mad at him and they would have went on strike, but... Uh, he just said, I'm going to cut your heads off if you don't give me the interpretation and the dream. And so when the chips were down, then they go to Daniel. And they say, hey, we're, we're all going to die. You're going to die too because you're in our, you know, this is your job category as well. Uh, and so Daniel and his friends prayed and they fasted and God told him the dream and the interpretation of the dream. And then Daniel rose up in the ranks of government there in Babylon. He had a great reputation as a, a godly man, a pure man, a holy man, a man of wisdom in all spheres of life, and so this verse it it could be sarcasm, maybe it is, but I rather see it as saying that the Ty- uh, Tyrians applied to Ithobul to puff him up all the more. In other words, when you know if you, this was kind of a saying about Ithobul because look at what he had accomplished with Tyre. It's like well he's wiser than Daniel. And I think probably they they thought that Daniel might be the real, uh, you know, drive behind Nebuchadnezzar. Because here's a thought, Daniel chapter 4, the episode where Nebuchadnezzar goes mad, is really a tract that he wrote giving his testimony of coming to faith in the God of Daniel. And Daniel and his wisdom played a prominent role in that. It's something that if you read Daniel 4, that he published and that was sent out throughout his kingdom and throughout the known world. Now, I don't know all the timing of his conversion and this invasion later of Tyre, but it might be possible that the II had read this and rejected it. Thus, this phrase, wiser than Daniel, might be his slam against Nebuchadnezzar and his so-called conversion to the God of Daniel. Who needs Daniel? Who needs the wisdom of Daniel when you can build this kind of an empire i mean nebuchadnezzar thought he had built an empire but you know he got humbled but here uh, you know i haven't been humbled i we, you know i don't have just one city i have two cities and one of them's out in the ocean and nobody can touch us and so it's very interesting the heart and the pride just the thought which would require more research in terms of its timing Verse 4: With your wisdom and your understanding, you have gained riches for yourself and gathered gold and silver into your treasuries. By your great wisdom in trade, you have increased your riches, and your heart is lifted up because of your riches. And so it's clear that Ithabal had real wisdom when it came to certain spheres of life. It's clear he was quite wise in the ways of the world. He was a commercial genius. If he was alive today, he'd be the guy behind the Geico commercials. I mean, I I am fascinated as a, as you know, a, a child of television. I am fascinated. There's like five or six, uh, Geico campaigns at once that are all the greatest advertisements in the history of television. You know, there's the caveman ads, there's the gecko, uh, there's the you know, the guy asking a question, Abraham Lincoln ever lie or whatever, you know, there's three of them. Now they've got guys from The Deadliest Catch doing Geico commercials. I think there's two or three other campaigns as well. It, 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 they are commercial geniuses when, when it comes to that. And so Ifable he was like that. He, he was Bill Gates and Steve Jobs rolled into one as far as his understanding of manufacturing and commerce and how to make money. But what would it do him to gain the whole world when he lost his soul? If you want to respect someone, make sure they're a believer who is building something for God. It doesn't have to be something great. It's already great if they're building it for God. And so just, if you have respect for people, that's great. But make sure they're Christians and that they're building for God. That they're building a life based on the Word of God. They're building a family, as Gino was talking about, raising their children in the nurture and the admonition of the Lord, not provoking their children to wrath, but sharing Christ with them. That they're building a, a reputation, that they're building in the church, ministering and all. That's, that's the kind of person that you want to be and that you want to respect. Verse 6, Therefore, thus says the Lord God, because you have set your heart as the heart of a God... Behold, therefore, I'll bring strangers against you, the most terrible of the nations. And they shall draw their swords against the beauty of your wisdom and defile your splendor. They shall throw you down into the pit and you shall die the death of the slain in the midst of the seas. Will you still say before him who slays you, I'm a God, but you shall be a man and not a God in the hand of him who slays you. George Reeves was the actor who portrayed Superman in the 1950s TV series I used to watch religiously as a kid. How many of you remember the George Reeves Superman? Man. He died at the age of 45, the victim of a gunshot wound. It's never been determined if it was self-inflicted, accidental, or murder. However, my family, which never told me the truth about anything, uh... When I was a kid and I, you know, somehow found out that George Reeves had died, they told me that he started thinking he was Superman because he played Superman on television and that he jumped out of a window from a height of, you know, like the Empire State Building thinking he could leap tall buildings at a single bound and he splattered on the ground and died. And so that that was the image I had for years. You can tell I just was with my family over the weekend and (laughs) I was having these cathartic moments, you know, of memories and stuff like this. Uh, So for years, I believed that crazy story, you know, and it's interesting, you know, and I thought, well, yeah, the guy, he kind of believed that he had become Superman and then he quickly found out that he wasn't Superman. Ifable would find out that he was no God when finally a man stood before him and killed him. Will you still say you're a God when the enemy I send comes and kills you? I guess not. Verse 10, You'll die the death of the uncircumcised by the hand of aliens, for I have spoken, says the Lord God. It means he would die unconverted, die in his sins, die eternally separated from God at the hands of enemies. He'd wait in the pit in Hades, where he's still waiting, by the way, for the resurrection of the damned, the second death, to be thrown alive into the lake of fire. the II, one of the greatest men the world has ever produced, a commercial genius, the ruler of Tyre at its heyday, he's waiting, suffering in Hades, uh, waiting for the second resurrection, the resurrection of the damned, uh, so that he can be thrown alive into the lake burning with fire. There is no Superman, nor is there going to be what the Germans called Superman, the Übermensch of the philosopher Nietzsche. Some of you know what I'm talking about. I don't even know what I'm talking about, but I studied it in school. Frederick Nietzsche, who was crazy, I think he died of syphilitic insanity or so, he was just a crazy German philosopher. He thought that we could become more than we are, more than human, supermen. Uh, kind of like the original X-Men idea, you know, and stuff. But he was just crazy and Hitler took his ideas and you know where that landed us. So there is no Superman. There's no X-Men. There's nothing like that. There is, however, the God-Man, Jesus Christ, by whom mere men can be saved. In Him we become fully human. We'll eventually shed these bodies of flesh. We'll be trading them in for transformed bodies, resurrected bodies, Eternal bodies. Uh, that's the kind of man that I want to be. Now, God begins to address Ithobal as if he were Satan in verse 11. Moreover, the word of the Lord came to me saying, Son of man, take up a lamentation for the king of Tyre. Now, some people think it's a big deal, but it's not that he called him prince earlier, but now addresses him as king. It can be shown easily in the Bible, especially in the book of First Samuel, that the two terms are used interchangeably of a ruler. Uh, You know, today we have our own understanding, you know, a prince is the son of the king and all of that. But when you're reading these ancient literature, that's not always true. What we think isn't always true, huh? Wow, imagine that. We're not always right about everything. And uh, so if, if you compare Scripture with Scripture, sometimes kings are called princes. It's no big deal. Verse 12, Son of man, take up a lamentation for the king of Tyre and say to him, Thus says the Lord God, You were the seal of perfection, full of wisdom and beauty and perfect in beauty. You were in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone was your covering, the sargis, topaz and diamond, beryl, onyx and jasper, sapphire, turquoise and emerald with gold. The workmanship of your timbrels and pipes was prepared for you on the day you were created. You were the anointed cherub who covers. I established you. You were on the holy mountain of God. You walk back and forth in the midst of fiery stones. You were perfect in your ways from the day you were created till iniquity was found in you. Uh, I don't think this is really all that hard to figure out who we're talking about. The person being addressed is a cherub. That's a class of angelic beings. This particular cherub was in Eden. Who is the only uh, cherub, only angel that we read about in Eden? Well, it's Lucifer, it's Satan, it's the serpent, it's the devil, and so uh, the Lord now is addressing the power behind the King of Tyre, just like when He talked to Peter and said, "Get behind Me, Satan." He's not talking, uh, you know, to a different person or anything like that, but He's giving us some insight as to what's really going on. We learn a few things about the devil here. He was and still is full of beauty. I don't think he looks like the guy on those firework stands, you know, the red devil firework stand. He doesn't knock on your door and say, hey, I'm the devil, you know, and the, what's with the pitch for? I, oh, by the way, since we're all about TV tonight, I love those termen. is it terminex the, where the, the big bugs come to your door? <laughs> is that oak? <laughs> you know, so it's like, you know, I mean, if, you know, if you open your door and there was a six foot, you know termite, I, I, I think you'd be concerned. You know? you'd, you'd wonder what's going on. You wouldn't need the Terminex man to come. You'd be terminated. I'm you know, It would be scary. Do you ever have nightmares? Do you ever have dreams about giant insects? There was a whole run of, of science fiction movies there when I was a kid where you know, nuclear, the nuclear time when all the radiation... You know, the bugs got real big and stuff and their pinchers came and they cut your head off and all that. That's terrifying to me. But, uh, you know, so... Uh, you know, the devil doesn't look like the devil, if that makes sense to you. Uh, he was created, we learn here. He's in no way an equal with God. It's not like the force or the yin and the yang. It's not good versus evil. And that's why, you know, I remember when people had the bumper sticker Jesus is the force. No, he's not. The force is that whole idea that there's good and there's evil and which is going to win because they're both equal. Well, if they're both equal, God out of the picture, I go evil every time, right? A lot more fun. Uh, there's a lot going on in the dark side, you know, and stuff. So that's not, and so, you know, in literature a lot of times and it's always God versus uh, the devil as if they were equal, and and as if the outcome is in question, the devil is a created being. Timbrels and pipes describe some sort of musical uh, ability, or you know, I, I it may be that he has a musical ability that we don't quite understand. Lucifer is thus said by many to have been the worship leader in heaven, the one who brought praise and uh, brought the other angels into a place of praise. He was in the very presence of God. According to Job, the book of Job, he still has access to God's throne. Uh, And it's possible here to identify the fiery stones with a fiery wall of protection around the throne of God in heaven. If that's the case, then we'd say that Lucifer was an inner circle, kind of an angel. But iniquity was found in him. The sin that corrupted Satan was self-generated, created blameless. His sin was pride, according to 1 Timothy 3.6 and other descriptions of him. Satan was a created angel who fell. The angels were created before the earth, according to Job 38. Satan fell before he tempted Adam and Eve in the garden. Satan's fall, therefore, must have occurred somewhere after the time the angels were created and before he tempted Adam and Eve in the garden of Eden. More than that, we cannot say. Did one-third of the angels rebel with him? Well, that seems to be true. We're told in Hebrews twelve twenty two that one-third of an innumerable, innumerable company of angels chose to rebel with him. The Apostle John saw a great wonder in heaven, quote, an enormous red dragon, his tail swept a third of the stars out of the sky and flung them to the earth. The great dragon was hurled down, that ancient serpent called the devil or Satan who leads the whole world astray. He was hurled to the earth and his angels with him. And so uh, we believe that Uh, the devil Satan Lucifer led one-third of the created angels in his original rebellion and we often talk about the fall of Satan but it's more accurate to to describe him as falling Uh, though Ezekiel presented the fall of Satan as a single act it actually occurs in stages his initial judgment was his expulsion from the position of God's anointed cherub before his throne God expelled him from the mount of God meaning heaven as I already said, he still allowed access to God in heaven, but he can't just hang out there anymore. In the tribulation, Satan will be cast from heaven and restricted to the earth uh, uh, and, and from the stellar heavens where he kind of hangs out now. And at the second coming, Satan will be confined in the millennium to the bottomless pit. After his brief release at the end of the millennium, He'll be cast into the lake of fire forever. And so he was thrown out of heaven. He still has access to heaven, but he's thrown out. The scripture says that he's the prince of the power of the air, meaning he hangs out in the stellar heaven somewhere. That's his kind of base of operations. From there he comes to the earth, he goes to heaven. But when the tribulation hits, he's going to be thrown down to the earth where he'll be confined. And uh, he'll do his damage on the earth. Then he'll be thrown down into the pit. For a thousand years, let out for a little while, then cast alive into the lake of fire, which was created for the devil and his angels. By the way, people, you know, worry about God sending people to hell. Hell was never created for human beings. It was created for the devil and his angels. But there's it's the only place people can go who reject Jesus Christ. Uh, and so that is also going to be the destination. And as, as I've told you many times, and you guys are smart enough to know this already without being told, the devil doesn't rule in hell. It's not that poetic. The devil suffers in hell. When he gets there, it's a place of incarceration and torment. It's not that him and his demons are going to be pitchforking you all the time. That's not how it works. Uh, as I understand hell, as, as much as I seek to understand it, uh, it's a place of, of weeping and gnashing of teeth and outer darkness. and um, I, I kind of think you're just going to, people in hell are going to be completely alone and separated from everything else in, in a kind of horrifying madness that uh, never ends. Um, I've been in really pitch dark. Do you ever go like to the caves up here? There's the one cave, I forget what it's called, up here on the, in Kings Canyon, where you can go in and they take you in, and it, then they turn off all the lights, and it's pitch dark. Then there's always one kid with a flashlight whose mom won't make him turn it off. I mean, the only, the only reason, Biden, Boyden Caves. The only reason you go in there is to experience pitch darkness and there's the one kid, oh, look how fun this is, and stuff, you know. I always get near that kid and just, you know, knock his flashlight down or something. Well, I don't know, what happened? Oh, But anyway, no, I, I don't. I want to. It's my evil heart. But uh, I don't know about you, but I don't like the dark. Do you like the dark? Who, who really likes the dark? Well, I, I just need to know who might be a vampire here. But, no. but uh, you know, the dark. I was watching a thing on TV the other night. There's only a couple of places on earth that, Do you know there's a darkness scale? How many of you knew there was a darkness scale that you could rate? Dark, Kenny knew because he's been in the dark. Uh, but there, there's only, a, it's like a one to five scale with five being total darkness. There's only a couple of places on the entire earth that qualify anymore as a five. Because of ambient light and cities and all the stuff that we've done, it's really hard to find on the surface of the earth complete, a place of complete darkness to see the, the sky that our forefathers would have seen and stuff like that. And so, you know, darkness, it's just kind of weird. Uh, and so Satan thrown into hell, he's not ruling down there. You know, he's not a rock star in hell, you know, tormenting people and doing all the things that all that medieval literature says. Verse 16, by the abundance of your trading, you became filled with violence within and you sinned. Therefore, I cast you as profane thing out of the mountain of God. And I destroyed you, O covering cherub, from the midst of the fiery stones. Your heart was lifted up because of your beauty. You uh, corrupted your wisdom for the sake of your splendor. I cast you to the ground. I laid you before kings that they might gaze at you. Sounds like God is addressing two people at once, and he sort of is, He's addressing Ithabal and the person who gives him his power, which is Satan. Interesting to note that when we think satanic, we usually associate it with death, blood, horror, and things like that. Here we see the abundance of trading was satanic. It's not so much the act or activity as the motivation behind it. You might say that Satan carries a PDA as much as he carries a pitchfork uh, in this description. So uh, you know, our ideas of what qualifies as satanic need to be uh, changed. Verse 18, you defiled your sanctuaries by the multitude of your iniquities, by the iniquity of your trading. Therefore, I brought fire from your midst. It devoured you, and I turned you to ashes upon the earth in the sight of all who saw you. All who knew you among the peoples are astonished at you. You've become a horror and shall be no more forever. And so Ezekiel describing Ithabal and Satan, uh, the purpose of the lament was to speak of Tyre's destruction He blends the characteristics of the satanic king with the human ruler. There is a passage later on in the Bible that talks about people looking at Satan and thinking, is this the one who caused all that trouble? Uh, Because we have such a weird idea of what he might actually look like. Satan's ultimate destiny, as I said, is the lake of fire. The defeat and death of the human ruler of Tyre was pictured as being consumed by fire. Both Satan and Tyre's defeats would shock those nations who had followed them God goes on this tire rant against the tyrant ruler and along the way we learn some things about worldliness and the devil and our own ultimate future. While Satan is falling, beloved, we will rise. Amen.